The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about Frankenstein. It's the 200th anniversary of Mary Shelley's masterpiece. But what have we learned since then about life and about death? Let's find out. Hi, everyone. Bethany here. What you are about to hear is a panel I moderated on September 1st, 2018 at the Dragon Con Science Track in Atlanta, Georgia. We got a panel of experts to talk about what Frankenstein's monster would have really been like and what Mary Shelley's ideas have brought us to today. Welcome to Science for the People. I have always wanted to do that. afterward. Um, So I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public, and we are here today because 2018 is the 200th anniversary of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, aka the modern Prometheus. And I don't know about you guys, but I I read this book recently, actually for the first time, um, and it has it all. Chases across icy plains, undead things, murder, a lot of a dude sitting around in remote locations making terrible decisions. <laughs> and it even has an audiobook narrated by Kenneth Branagh. I, I highly recommend. Um, but it also raises a lot of questions uh, about ethics, transplants, and whether or not the whole monster would be rotting terribly off his own limbs. And so, to take on these questions, we have today's all-star panel. If you guys would be willing to go down the line and introduce yourselves. So hi everybody, my name is Lucas Hernandez, I'm a lead educator at the Florida Aquarium. I have my degree in integrated animal biology. On the side, I also have a podcast called The Science of Pokemon, where we discuss biology and animals. I'm really excited to do this with you guys, because a lot of times we view these things, monsters as, well, monsters, and... Quite frankly, they're animals, and I want to actually go into a little bit more detail on that a bit further on. I'm Tina Say. I'm the senior writer at Science News Magazine, and my degree is in um, molecular genetics and science journalism. I'm Trevor Valley. I'm a paleontologist, formerly the lab supervisor for Larry Carpets, and so basically I deal with lots of dead stuff. Um, I'm specifically an ice age mammal specialist, and I have been to Siberia and digging out uh, full intact mammoth carcasses from the permafrost. So, yeah, things that uh, should or should not be back from the dead, and yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> Hi, my name is Nancy Miarelli. I go by Cybuds online. I live in Ecuador, where I do insect tours of Ecuador. Uh, so, it doesn't mean you didn't come find me after the panel. <laughs> Um, I'm an entomologist, known as the live bugs, and I will be here talking about the composition process of Sidney Frankenstein and how he probably would just be a rotting faggot ball falling apart. So I wanted to start by getting a brief read of the room. Who here has read Frankenstein? Who here has seen the Mel Brooks version? (laughs) Thank you. And I wanted to start by asking who is the monster? In Frankenstein. Thank you. <laughs> oh. Can we get a show of hands as to whether or not the monster is the monster or Frankenstein is the monster? So who votes for the monster as the monster? Are you 
There is not a hand in the room. Who's voting for Dr. Frankenstein? You're all people after my own heart. You know you're on a podcast, people. They can't see your hands. Who votes for Dr. Frankenstein? Yeah, so, you know, 
uh, he might uh, might be able to negotiate all of his different uh, factions, you know, maybe able to come to some sort of agreement and get along after all. But um, I still think that uh, rejection is going to be a major hurdle for piecing together a body from other bodies. Further, I, I, it makes me wonder, so, you know, you mentioned that bone marrow transplants potentially is, like, helping to control the immune system reaction, but, like, that's involving a transplant and a recipient. If you're putting together a body from spare parts, who is the recipient here? Like, everybody. <laughs> everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, I think the, the recipient would be whoever has the most bone marrow in the game. <laughs> so is that, like, the femur? Uh, you know, femurs, spines, hips, maybe. Hips, yeah. hips, yeah, that's good. And those hips lie. So, speaking as we're talking about which, which body parts happen the most, we're talking about where we got these body parts, because these body parts, I love how Dr. Frankenstein, Frankenstein puts this thing together, because in the book, he basically just collects parts over a period of months and leaves them in his attic. <laughs> Just sitting there where they, they just, they, yeah. Who wants to talk about decay? <laughs> I do. <laughs> uh, so at my time at the University of Georgia, I taught a forensic entomology class. And forensic entomology, if you like CSI, is basically you can tell how long a body has been dead on the side of the street based on the maggots that are crawling out of it. So here's a little bit of insect biology. So insects, they, their growth rate is dependent on the temperature. So if you have your graph of like growth rate and temperature, it kind of looks something like, like upwards, almost exponential, and then hits a peak where it kind of drops off. But basically, the warmer it is, the faster your maggots develop. A female fly, the blowfly is the first one to even smell it. Can can smell a dead body within minutes from up to 12 miles away. Yeah, crazy. So when they get there, they lay their eggs uh, between 50 and 200 at a time. So you have a lot of flies in Sanger Frankenstein's attic laying a lot of eggs on a lot of dead parts. They hatch relatively quickly within a couple days, depending on the temperature, and some flies even lay like egg, uh, they have the eggs that pass through them and then they actually just lay maggots on the body. So things like rivers of maggots are things that actually happen to, to forensic entomologists when they're discovering and opening up bodies. So they're there for a uh, quite a time, we'll say, these parts can be anything from Having eggs on them, so if you put them together, you don't even have to worry about the immune system because, you know, in a couple of days, the maggots will just be eating them apart. They could be in the stage where um, the skin is literally crawling because of all the maggots inside of it, or you can get to a part where there's actually nothing left but skin and bone, and there's no muscle to move the monster because the maggots have literally eaten the entire thing out. So if they manage to walk at all, if he did, he would basically be a walking, drooping, looping magnet. 
I, I hope that there's like an entomology death metal band called Rivers of Maggots. <laughs> so in our forensic entomology class, the students actually have to put pigs out uh, and see the, see the decomposition process. And we let the students do whatever they wanted to them. So some students like hacked it up into pieces. Some people like closed it. You got to really see the students' personality. Not that is so metal. <laughs> yeah. And so one of them, the one that they like ripped up, like there were so many maggots the leg of the pig that they actually moved it like a couple feet because there were literally thousands of maggots. This is the part where I'm glad that I don't drink Dragon Club. (laughs) Um, And we have another expert here on, on death and decay. Trevor? I, I'm just trying to think of what I would do to one of those snakes. Um, <laughs> this would make it interesting. Um, yeah, Death and Decay is a really fun and cool thing. Um, I do dead crap all the time. Um, but it also, uh, like some of the ambient temperature and all that. Um, but the interesting thing is how the flesh is preserved at all. When you have, uh, for example, with mammoth carcasses, they're trapped in permafrost, so it's like they still have hair and muscle fiber and all that. But mammal skin doesn't like to freeze. All of you know, all the cool juices inside a cell create ice crystals, rupturing the cell walls. So, doctor, doctor, air quotes, uh, and Frankenstein, if he would have say like frozen them up in the attic. It's like, oh, well, you know, they don't want to be a maggot ball. I'm going to freeze them. Well, then as soon as you take it out, the entire thing begins to denature and melt. Recovering mammoth carcasses, we, you know, we chiseled it out and brought it into the sun and started working on it, and then you ended up with parts of it liquefying. So, yeah, it's kind of gross. So, can I, what does it smell like? Ooh. Um, well, at first there was no smell because it's frozen. As it slowly started warming up, you got this kind of like that that sweet, almost cloying smell of death. And then it smelled like a large explosion went off at a Ray Wing Brothers circus show in the middle of the summer in a hayfield. It's hard to actually describe the smell. <laughs> um, because I've smelled some really horrible things in my life. That was probably the talk. But yeah, it was like a, it was like a barnyard abattoir meets you know, meets a grass. Grass up. It's just kinda like, oh, okay, the sweet smell of death and oh god. <laughs> and then when we finally got to the back end of the mammoth, we figured out we found out that the back was missing. So it had been eaten away by predators. So unfortunately, the upper gastrointestinal tract was exposed. So then you have 35,000-year-old forms and greenery and all that. Suddenly, then we're half-digested going, I've got oxygen now. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then I stick my hand elbow deep in the mouth. Oh, oh, no, that's later. I have something to add to this as well. even if you don't have the insects or your mammoth or carcass just kind of liquefying, so if you did manage to have it be a fresh-ish and you manage to keep all the flies off of it, there's still bacteria. And so we still talk about this part of the process where um, at first you just have like the dead thing out called the fresh-ish. 
And then you've got what's called the bloat stage, which is if the, the creature is together, there's so much bacteria producing so many gases that the thing literally goes whoop, like a balloon. And then, as you can imagine, eventually it pops. Yeah! Yeah. Which, uh, having seen that, like, is also quite disgusting. Um, and that's like, you'll literally get a slit, especially kind of in like, the stomachy area, you'll get like a slit. Um, where all the gases have now escaped, and inside is usually like liquidy and gooey. So even if you don't have maggots in there, you still have like liquidy, gooey, used to be flesh stuff just kind of oozing and pouring out of your limbs and or corpses. They've had this issue with um, whales in the past, where whales have washed up on the beach, and there was one in Japan, specifically a sperm whale. They were trying to transit it to a museum. Yeah, while they could have had Unfortunately, that time bomb went off in the middle of a crowded city. Whale chunks and went everywhere. Like, I was just going to mention that. I know. You want to see this? Google whale explosion. You can't, can't Google whale explosion because then you get the one in Washington and they yeah. kind of load up with dynamite. Yeah, that one. Um, but yeah, no, let's look up Japanese, Japanese whale carcass and it just goes. As you can see, we have a very interesting internet search history. Yes. <laughs> so who's hungry? Yo, like always. <laughs> Android, new, new browser, incognito. <laughs> now, um, luckily for, I guess, all of us, in this book, uh, the monster isn't dead. So, it, I mean, in theory, it's brought back to life. And what I found particularly interesting upon my rereading of Frankenstein is that it's actually not specified how that happens. He talks about learning secret techniques to bring this monster back to life, but everyone just kind of assumes that it was electricity. Um, yeah. Can we talk about that a little bit? Does that work? Well, one of the reasons that people assume it was electricity is because uh, Mary Shelley, in one of her forewords to the book, um, said that the book was inspired by learning about uh, galvanism. So galvanism is uh, biological electricity, and the, the properties were discovered by Luigi Galvani. Now, he had touched um, electrodes to frog's legs, and they twitched. Well, his nephew took that a little bit further, and there was a convicted criminal who was hung, he was dead, and the nephew got a hold of this guy's corpse and got permission to do this, and he did a series of electrical shocks, and there's a passage describing what happened. Uh, on the first application of the process to the face, the jaws of the deceased criminal began to quiver, and the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted, and one eye was actually opened. In the subsequent parts of the process, the right hand was raised and clenched, and the legs and thighs were set in motion. So there was this uh, whole notion that, you know, maybe dead people weren't really dead because all you needed to do was apply a little bit of electricity and bring them back. And at the same time, uh, around the same time, the Humane Society was founded in England. And you may be wondering what pound puppies have to do with this. Well, the Humane Society oh, no. there no. was not was not about rescuing animals. Oh, it was about resuscitating people. 
and they were trying to get people to go out and find people who had apparently been drowned and, you know, resuscitate them, bring them back. And they would pay you and you would get extra money if your resuscitation actually worked. So there was this whole idea that... But you still get paid regardless. Yeah. You just get more if it works. But there's not really, like, such a big boundary between life and death. And apparently Mary Shelley's mother was one of the people who was resuscitated against her will because she had tried to commit suicide and had been brought back. Um, and uh, there was a great fear around this time that people would be thought dead when they really weren't and then they'd be buried alive. So uh, there's there, there, at, around this time when she was writing the book, there was a very thin veil between life and death. And, you know, it seemed plausible, but a little jolt of electricity could maybe pierce that veil. So speaking of uh, buried alive, <laughs> or rather just buried in general, um, of course, where does he, you know, Dr. Frankenstein, 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 gets these parts and he stores them in the attic, but he has to get those parts. Can we talk about grave robbing? Sure. Um, <laughs> if I can interject for the, the last thing about electricity, if, you, if anyone's a science teacher, um, you can actually take a cockroach and take a cockroach leg and hook it up to an electrode and play music and a cockroach leg will wiggle in time to music. Um, I highly recommend the Backstreet Boys for this. Yeah, highly recommend. Uh, you can do that, and you can just get kids with all the pieces, including what the leg twitches. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just have to say something real quick. I, it was just it was like, can we talk about grave grave robbing? You're like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to swap seats? <laughs> Doctors to go and steal the bones for scientific study. 
So this is actually a thing that still happens in the world. Which when I found, I thought everyone was lying to me when they they're like, oh yeah, people just steal the bones, and they said it so casually, like, oh yeah, and then they're like, oh yeah, you see that one? How that one's empty? Yeah, someone someone stole that two years ago. And I was like, what about that empty? They're like, yeah, that one too. And I'm like, alright. What? What? So grave robbing is actually still a thing that happens. Man, I missed all these places when I was in Ecuador. <laughs> and you want us to go visit the hospital? Oh, <laughs> as long as you don't die and get buried there, you're fine. Your, your bones will not be stolen. I was dealing with soft bones, so I, I want to meet people. I don't want to meet the people because that's cool. Though. Yeah. I will graciously <laughs> decline. <laughs> that, that's a hard note. <laughs> graciously. So. Assuming, we're going to go ahead and make a whole bunch of assumptions here. We're going to assume that we get some parts. We're going to assume that those parts stay fresh enough long enough to put them together. We're going to assume we can bring the whole thing back to life. And then we're going to assume that it's all not going to reject itself violently. <laughs> Presumably. Um, once we have this creature, Frankenstein doesn't do a good job with his creation. Do you want to talk about that, Lucas? <laughs> yeah, so um, one of the things you learn, um, the Florida Aquarium is one of a group of people called the AZA, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. They, the Georgia Aquarium and Zoo Tampa are part of them. They are an organization that takes all the different zoos and aquariums around the world, and they will tell them the best standards for the animal to go above and beyond that. The best example I have the room we're in right now um, by the United States Department of Agriculture standards, I could fit two tigers in here. So long as it has shape and it has a plate and double fencing system, it doesn't need much. That's why there are more tigers in American backyards. But the point I'm trying to make with this is that um, I've studied some of these standards, and I can tell you right now, like the problem with Frankenstein, a lot of monster movies, is that we're treating them like monsters. Frankenstein is not a monster. What you made was an animal, and you're not treating it well. Uh, my favorite example of this for Frankenstein is one freaking out and running away. Not a great plan. <laughs> for starters, you created a social animal, and you're freaking out in front of it, and you're trying, you're scaring it, you're just abandoning it immediately. This animal that has no recognizable other traits, it, it's partially, it's partially human, but how much of that brain is actually functioning on a human level? But we tell through the story that this animal is social. Um, enrichment is what we give to animals, things like otters, things like lemurs, um, these things that need Social, something active to do, and you need these better social communication. He just made one of these things. I, obviously, Frankenstein is asked to make another one further down the line, but he should have been thinking that immediately when you're making a social animal. He's keeping it alive, but like if you notice, can anyone here name me a monster movie where the monster actually lives comfortably after it's made? <laughs> Does it have its proper habitat? What's Frankenstein's diet anyway? What are you giving it for enrichment? What's its setting like? These are the questions I'm asking. Do you posit and are you using positive reinforcement training? Because that's that does, I don't think that's positive reinforcement running away. What is that? Negative reinforcement? <laughs> one one could argue Godzilla. Yes! One could argue Godzilla. <laughs> Uh, it, it's one of those things like Godzilla does make it away from the city, but like he's not made by man specifically for the purpose of being made by man. He's made on accident. But a lot of the monsters like, behold, the man shark monster. Oh no, it turned on me. Why? I'll tell you. I wonder. Yeah, I'll tell you why. Because you didn't treat it like an animal. You tried treating it like a monster, shoving it in a cage and poking it with a stick. But no, no animal likes that. If you've ever met an otter before, yeah, if you don't give them enrichment, they will rip you apart. 
Otters are jerks. But again, if you give them like the proper structure, if you give them like these things to enrich their lives, you give them the right training program, you can work wonders with Frankenstein. You can work wonders with otters. We have um, otters at the Florida Aquarium that will literally sit still for us and take eye drops. Like they just, they'll just stand there and they'll stare up and they'll take eye drops, they'll get a piece of food. That's the training that can be done to help with Frankenstein. Like, oh, you didn't smash that table. Cookie? <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. You, did, you, you brought the villager here and you snap, you snap. Okay, well, you're not being rewarded for that. We're going to ignore that behavior until you do a more positive one. <laughs> it would get results. And in the end, you would have less of a Mary Shelley Frankenstein and more of a Mel Brooks putting on the Ritz Frankenstein. <laughs> That's how it's done. Proper training can make this monster, not a monster, but a functional member of society or a people zoo. <laughs> So we go from positive reinforcement to tap dancing lessons. I mean, like, have you seen what we've done to chimpanzees in some places? Like, there's some guy who taught a chimpanzee black belt karate. I'm thinking if he can pull that stunt off, I think we can get it to tap dance. Because it, it does show high coordination. And that's actually really important, that functionality. If, you're, if we're all saying that this animal is holding itself together, that would be a pretty good test of all of its ligaments and all of its joints and all of its muscles. Any... Animal can be taught how to walk on two legs if it has the proper bone structure, but to actually be able to coordinate and do it well, that'd be a really good test to see what would happen to it. And it would also make some money because, as most scientists know, it's really hard to get that grant money sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and if I have to make my creation tap dance, putting on the wrist, then by God, I'll do it. This <laughs> sweet image in my head of, you know, Dr. Frankenstein and Adam playing catch <laughs> one summer day, just like. Figure it out. 
I so, got a monitor lizard. It's not trained. So I would you call. I would say we're kind of coming to the issue of the fact that Frankenstein did this because he could. Not necessarily because he should. And so I would like to talk a little bit about shoulds, and I would like to start with things like organ transplants, because of course this whole thing began with a massive whole body transplant. Um, so for example, um, you might be aware that there's a dude whose name is escaping me right now who wants to do a head transplant? Yeah. yeah. He's in Italy. <laughs> he, he has a patient who is paralyzed, and so he wants to do what's being called a head transplant, which is really a body transplant because it would be the guy's head on a different body. Um, and he thinks he can do this uh, because, you know, they've done it with dogs and mice. And um, he actually did a successful transplant on a cadaver. Why are there quotation marks when you said successful? <laughs> because it was already dead. <laughs> I, the way I like to describe this is that he performed a successful head transplant where nobody died. <laughs> to which I say, give me a scalpel, two bodies, in 14 hours, and I'll do the same thing. <laughs> yes, he, he declared it a success, and I, I believe he published it somewhere. Um, but yes, so... The question is, if you're going to do a head transplant, or a transplant of any kind, what kind of hoops do you need to jump through as a scientist that Frankenstein completely failed and should have been fired for not doing if he'd had a job? Oh, well, well first of all... <laughs> sanitary workstation. Right. First of all, safety. Safety has to be paramount. So you have to... Um, in a standard of care as well, you know, you can't be doing something that um, is not going to be an improvement upon the current state of medicine, which I guess, you know, in the early 1800s, the current state of medicine wasn't necessarily... <laughs> um, it was things and alcohol, <laughs> things and alcohol, morphine, and morphine and alcohol. Just hold this leech here for a while. What's that runny nose? Cocaine will fix that right up for you. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and like, 
that signs of Jurassic World on Monday? Um, no, Sunday, tomorrow, whatever. I don't know. Um, no, no, I'm, I'm on a different one. Thank you. Um, yeah, so there's a whole thing right now. You may have heard it. Um, there's a team of uh, a, a Korean genetics team with the help of um, who, by the way, who's leading it, who's had all of his grants and everything taken away for unethical things. Um, yeah, he did successfully clone dogs, um, which is interesting. He, along with the Northeastern Federal University of uh, Siberia, they are claiming that they will be able to clone a mammoth. And 10 years ago, they said they could do it in 20. Um, well, 10 years later, no, not even. Um, the problem is there's two ways to do it. You can either do a true cloning where you would have to find an intact cell of a mammoth and then put that into an ovum from the uh, closest living ancestor, which would be an Indian elephant. The only problem is Indian elephants uh, go into must. Uh, they, uh, they produce uh, fertile uh, ovum very rarely. And Dolly the sheep, for example, the famous clone sheep, something like 870 tries and 12 took, one, uh, two went to full term, one was stillborn, and then Dolly. We don't have 870 Indian elephant eggs or anything like that. So the closest thing that they're thinking about doing now is using uh, a piece together um, uh, primogenius, uh, William and the genome, and inserting it into embryonic Indian elephants. So you end up with this weird kind of CRISPR chimera of not a mammoth, but it would be a Indian elephant expressing mammoth-like genes. The only problem with all of this is that these animals are extinct, and like you were saying, they're herd animals. The idea of just cloning a mammoth and going, ta-da, here's your mammoth. It would just be in a zoo or in a museum or something like that going, I hate myself, God. <laughs> They have that actually happened. There is a zoo in Japan. It's very sad. There is an elephant yes. that is on its own. And I don't, like, a lot of people thought, like, oh, this thing is psychotic. And, like, I, you can't really do that for animals. This is one of the few times I would say, no, that animal is probably clinically insane by elephant standpoint. It is angry. It thrashes at everything. It hates everyone. It's so lonely and scared. Like, that's what happens when you don't consider an animal's cost. Like, we don't consider that. It's not the same thing of like, oh, well, we didn't do it right. Like, we don't know what these things truly ate. We don't have that plant anymore. No, we don't. We have yes. that's on substitutes, and the substitute might not cut it. Like, you can't, like, bring it back to life. Like, well, that's more your thing. Keeping it alive around with mine, I'd be like, no, I, uh -huh. I can't even imagine. Like, also, would it come out with white hair or just kind of patchy like a beard? I don't know how the hair would translate. Right, and that, and that would be weird. And yeah, but, but you're absolutely right. The mammoth step, the environment, the paleo environment they are from, is completely and totally extinct. The main forbs and small uh, and small plant material that they were eating does not exist anymore in the Siberian tundra. So we're going to have to find a nutritious substitute for this, you know, magic mammoth. It's going to slowly go insane. It's completely and totally hysterically unethical. I have a question for the animals, the murder people. So, um, insects <laughs> that eat uh, plants and stuff usually have gut bacteria to help them digest all of that stuff. Would your mammoth need that as well? And you would also absolutely, absolutely. need that as well. Would not be a mammoth. 
elf that had some mammoth like quality. Well, he's very pursuit mammoth. Yeah, instead of like putting it all like in like symbols, let's just call it Carl. Let's call this thing Carl. It's Carl. It depends how Carl was made. If Carl was using a full nuclear transfer, then it's a mammoth. That's true. If it's the chimera, it's Carl. So bringing it back from, from Carl to Frankenstein, <laughs> which is a, a theory, a human in theory. Um, yes. So what to like, we, we've already kind of gone down some really dark paths here. I'm not going to lie. Like, what do we owe Frankenstein's monster? We have um, we have a policy at a lot of AZA zoos and aquariums. Um, there's a reason we don't feed live food to animals. One of it is that the animals can't hurt. The other is, has anyone here seen those videos of like a rat being friends with a mouse after trying to get fed? They're cute and adorable, but what that would mean in an AZA facility would mean that well, it's alive still. Now we have to treat it just like any other AZA animal. The reason I say this is because. No matter, like, we have a responsibility if we are going to go down this path of humanity. I feel that we have that responsibility. Like, guess what? You made it. You better darn well take care of it. Like, you better do that job right because it's important, not just for that animal's sake, for the sake of, well, honestly, science, the surrounding area. I mean, you have, like, let's say they created Carl and they didn't take good care of him. And that thing goes insane. That's not just bad for that animal. That's also going to set science back a long way, credibility wise. It's going to like, imagine the news. Imagine like any, any talk to MSNBC, CNN, the first article you're going to see is, scientists made psycho elephant goes insane. <laughs> and we laugh, but then it's just going to throw us back. Like it's, a lot of people feel that scientists, like the, the, the movie stereotype that scientists don't have ethics, that we don't have feelings for our creation, and that like we just do things because it's fun and silly, and we want to prove how smart we are as well. I don't know why that accent was British, but the point is... <laughs> we do not do that. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We love our stuff, and a lot of people ask us, well, how can you work at a zoo and love animals? Like, simple, because these are living creatures that I care for with better quality than I feed my own body. <laughs> These animals get better food and better treatment and more hugs than I ever will. <laughs> like, it's really, like, it's one of those things, like, to let people know, like, we do have a responsibility for taking care of the animals. Is there an zoo and aquarium? I would put that same responsibility. If Frankenstein was in the next habitat over, he's going to get his lady Frankenstein. He's going to get out of, like, tire swing. Hey, now. Story time. I think the lady Frankenstein should have some agency in Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's the thing. He might, he might be part of the species yeah. survival plan. We don't just throw a female in. There's a courtship involved, and if it doesn't take, well, we try and find another one. <laughs> so, I mean, he's also going to need dating tips. <laughs> Again, uh, that's what putting on the wrist is for. <laughs> that's candlelight dinners. You fire back. It sucks. All right. So now that we've turned this around, I feel better. Let's open it up to some questions, and if you ask questions, please speak them into the microphone. It is better for accessibility and also for the podcast. Uh, given that Carl is basically an Indian elephant, um, how much better would it be if you kept it with other Indian elephants that would be in your social structure? That's interesting because, again, that's uncharted territory. You have no idea which genes you're going to take and not take, but you also have to remember the Indian elephants have to acknowledge it, yeah. not the other way around. If they're just seeing this kind of patchy 
version of themselves running over that the group might not accept it, the mother might turn it away, and then it's just going to be raised by people, which then defeats the whole purpose. Well, and also, Carl is supposed to be cold tolerant, and so that might mean that he can't handle heat very well, so he might not be very well adapted to the environment that the Indian elephants like. And I mean, to bring it back around from Carl to Frankenstein, <laughs> um, uh, it, you know, it should be noted that in the book, Adam, the monster, monster, air quotes, um, actually does attempt to make friends. He, like, really puts some effort in there, learning language and trying to get to know people. And he, like, carefully approaches one guy and is like, hi, can we, can we, like, hang out sometime? And then the other humans come in and freak out. And he gets socially rejected. I mean, if a tiger broke out from the zoo and it was still highly social and it came up to you looking for packs, most of you would hopefully run. <laughs> I mean, you can't blame him for that. I, again, we can always just blame Frankenstein. Yeah. Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, a failure of parenting. Next question. <laughs> I would totally pet the tiger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, bye bye, Ben. Right, go again. So, in Frankenstein, uh, the monster, Adam. Actually, has very good human intelligence. That he, uh, he calls himself a separate species, but he's made of human humanness. Um, when dealing with that kind of thing scientifically, uh, other sci-fi have touched on this. Isn't a huge ethic um, ethic problem? Uh, like this isn't just like a fish or a tiger. This is something that's human humanness. Uh, wouldn't that create a whole other batch of problems as well? Oh, it's an ethical nightmare. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like not not even. It's like not only is he procuring parts for Adam in without consent, without consent in naughty ways, he is now creating He's creating something with and that that brain is from somebody else. So it's never really touched on if there are latent memories or anything of the you know how the brains work. I'm still not sure. Um, but it's this is an ethical minefield. You could also have the Monsanto situation where if you created it, you get to have the rights over it. So that's yep. another ethical mind field because they're currently, if they're farmers working with this debate, like, hey, wait a minute, we bought these seeds. Yes, but we invented that plant. So uh, you have to do it the way we say so because we own it. And that's just, you know, that's just another ethical mind field you have to walk through. Humanist or not, would the law stand? Well, he was made in a laboratory by this crazy weirdo. So I guess he belongs well, to him. I think that does, I think there are, uh, current laws and regulations that, that that is not the case, like with, um, yeah, uh, in vitro fertilizations and such, you can argue that those embryos are created in the lab, but they are, yeah, they are the property of the, the parents, <laughs> and uh, there are, right now, uh, ongoing um, legal battles over whether or not those embryos are personal. Well, and, and not to mention the issues that we came up with, uh, squishy brain parts, that brain did come from somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, well, and all the parts did, so technically you have a shareholders association. <laughs> the HOA on that, the HOA yeah. meetings have to be a nightmare. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dr. Frankenstein, that is my husband's arm. <laughs> but I'm also wondering the about... The Council of Frankenstein will now vote all in favor of teaching you to dance, say aye. Motion carries. I would, I would also like like to talk about like the brain. Can we talk about identity? You know, we you know Frankenstein, the monster comes to life. Adam comes to life, 
and he appears to be as a newborn. He has no language. He has, you know, he just wants to find love, whatever, um, as, as it were. But in theory, in theory, I mean, he might have someone else's memories or someone else's sense of self. That, that was something I wanted to ask about the, the head transplant thing. Yeah. It's like, this is like a weird, like, your grandmother's brooms, like, scenario. Like, are you still the same person because it's a head on a totally different body? That's not... Well, <laughs> right? Yeah, body dysphoria from hell. Well, like, so from my head's perspective, honestly, it, I mean, the body's probably still going to be paralyzed because we don't know how to repair spinal cords and people who, who they already belong to. So, you know, from his perspective, I'm not sure that his head being on a different body would, would give him a substantively different experience of life. Um, so, you know, his, his sense of self would probably be the same. I mean, just go full cyborg. <laughs> Thank you! Yeah, yeah, absolutely! Just like, you know, a breathing box and tubes and the... <laughs> Gigantically huge, and ethanol causes severe shrinkage. So, 
How big is it before? Maybe it's even bigger. Oh, cold, cold. One of the latest Frankenstein uh, ones, uh, Victor with uh, Harry Potter and uh, Professor X. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, they mentioned in the movies, it's like, oh, we don't have enough blood. Let's use three hearts. And two sets of lungs. What is this? The space marines from 40, Warhammer 40? Right! <laughs> yeah, the, but they might, like, how the hell would that work? Yeah, this, a is, this is the case where quantity yeah. simply cannot replace quality. Kind of going back all the way to the beginning of the panel, um, when you guys were talking about how um, adding body parts to different bodies together and how they reject each other and that sort of thing, um, with modern science and people, you know, like having ears on rats and then transplanting them to humans. In in that sort of respect, is that easier to then build a, a Frankenstein monster if you have pieces that are coming from not necessarily human parts? So that's called uh, something called xenotransplantation. And people are, are working on that because there is a severe shortage of human donor organs. Um, that's probably the biggest problem in transplant medicine. And so the idea is that we're already like slaughter pigs, for instance, for food. So why not be able to transplant some of those organs and, and uh, you know, solve that problem? So the problem is that pigs are a different species and they contain a lot of sugars on their proteins that the human immune system can react against. Um, they have um, lots of what are called endogenous retroviruses that might um, infect a human cell, and then you can jump around and break genes in the human, which would cause problems. So people are using this tool called CRISPR, um, which if you don't know what it is, it's a molecular biology tool that is part of a bacterial immune system that helps fight off viruses that people have now engineered so that you can basically point to any gene that you want in the genome and it will go and make change in that gene. So they've been, they've been using this to get rid of those endogenous retroviruses and they can get rid of um, up to 60 some at, in one go.
had thrown the cockroach in there using the don't fly. So naturally, like, oh, now he makes an that fly. So now they started doing doing the same thing with the beetles. But now with an Xbox controller, it's like with a regular remote control. And a lot of people ask about the ethics of mind controlling these insects like that. And to which I answer, it's already happening in nature. And if you're interested in learning more about that, come to our panel on Monday. <laughs> uh, but basically, there are fungus, uh, different types of fungi, and there's also these things called parasitic wasps that will actually uh, chemically change the brain, and so they can control the insect. They can make it walk into places that it probably doesn't want to walk. They can make it get eaten by things that it probably shouldn't get eaten by because it's out in the open. Um, and there's even a case of a wasp that literally walks a cockroach like a dog to its death. And so my answer is, if we're talking about bugs, it's already happening in nature. So I guess now we can go up to things with vertebrates, because we don't deal with ethics and entomology. Like, no one cares if you kill all the cockroaches, so we don't deal with ethics. My only question with that control thing, would it run smoother smoother with a keyboard and mouse setup, or... Probably. Like, <laughs> like those, um... Those, anyone remember the Donkey Kong Bongo controllers from yeah. the Ninja Turtles? I want to. If I'd have to call the deal, I might as well just take this the full way through. <laughs> I'm getting all my own rock band controllers. Yeah. <laughs> but I, so you know, Goat Simulator. Yes. I want, I want Beetlesim now. Uh, like VR headset. You're flying around. <laughs> Maybe the espionage application. Dude, that'd be sick. <laughs> the, the ethical thing coming to that was. It's like, oh, who would notice a fly? Who would literally notice a cockroach on the wall? So it's now like a spying thing that people are worried about. No one really cares about what the people thinks. <laughs> and on that note, nobody give these guys funding to create a spy fly. Thank you all so much. No spy fly. If you'd like to learn more about Lucas Hernandez, Nancy Miarelli, Tina Say, and Trevor Valley, we've linked to more information about them and about Frankenstein at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. You can also find our Patreon page, where you can support more shows like this one with a monthly donation. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. 
The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>